Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Captain Hunter's Podcast, the podcast that is dedicated towards bridging the divide between the police and the communities that they serve. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really, really appreciate the love, support that has been coming in. Um, so uh, make sure that you rate, subscribe, and share. Follow me on these different platforms, Instagram, Twitter. Both of those are CPTL Hunter. Follow me on Facebook. We've been chiming in a little bit more on the Facebook page, Captain Hunter's podcast. Uh, you know, you can always send me an article, send me a link um, through these different modes and methods and mediums to uh, review a video. I've been trying to do a little bit more of that. Uh, make sure that you pick up the book, Police Reform, a Retired Police Captain's Perspective on the Evolution of Law Enforcement and How to Fix or improve the criminal justice system. Make sure you pick that up, lulu.com, lulu.com, or head over to the website, hunterpolicetraining.com. The email, of course, is cptlhunter at gmail.com. Some of your likes, your dislikes, thoughts, uh, stories, um, anyone that you want me to interview, uh, if you want to be interviewed, uh, there's something you want to talk about, police reform. And remember, we talk about not only police reform, but we talk about a lot of other things that have to do with the community. I really believe that the community needs to be improved. We need to improve our communities in order to improve the relationship with the police and the criminal justice system and with our politicians. And there's so much correction that we need to, to do and go for. You can support the podcast through Cash App, Venmo, PayPal. PayPal is CPT, C-A-P-T, Capped Hunter. Uh, Cash App and Venmo are CPTL Hunter. Uh, the website is hunterpolicetraining.com. And from there, you can access all my different services. Take a look at what we got going on. If you need a public speaker on uh, on any of these particular events, let me know. I'm your man. Uh, if you have any different trainings that you want, any testing that you need, uh, preparation for, uh, once again, I am your man. What do we got going on here? Oh, listen, I before we get into the episode here, I got to give a public uh, apology to Dr. Tahari Jackson. Now, we did this episode when President Trump had canceled diversity training. Um, well, maybe before that. We did this episode quite, quite some time ago, around the time that President Trump had canceled his diversity training. So we did this episode on Facebook Live. Great episode, great interview, as always, with Dr. Jackson. And so after that episode, you know, that episode lived on, uh, it, it lives on YouTube. It lives on uh, the Facebook page, Cap Captain Hunter's podcast on both of those platforms. However, I thought had, I had released the audio version of this. So I did not. <laughs> and then uh, once I, um, and then I had Dr. Tahari Jackson on again, because she wrote another piece, Hypothetical Racism, which would be the next audio episode. So I want to th say thank you to my special guest, Dr. Tahari Jackson, my ray of sunshine there. She is just, she is just a delight. If, if the audience could see the, the text messages and the emojis that she sent, she's just a bubbling <laughs> ray of sunshine. So thank you so much for, for being on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Um, so can you uh, tell us what you've been up to these last few weeks? Oh, yeah. So I, yes, this has been a really, so this has been a busy summer. So I've been writing 
Um, you and I t tonight hopefully are going to be able to talk about the anti-racism piece that I wrote in response to the executive order. Um, you know, I'm a consultant, uh, Dr. Tahari Consulting, so I have all I help all sorts of organizations sort of get it together with regard to their diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging efforts. Um, I yeah, I have been working uh, with the American Institute of Physics. Um, uh, AIP as their uh, diversity, equity, belonging, and accessibility officer, um, and and continuing to do work, um, you know, in the community with with whoever needs it. So it's been a busy time, and it would have been even busier because um, uh, so many of my partners are federal agencies and federal employees. So 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 that's why I wrote the piece. Yeah. Very very nice. Very very nice. Uh, so to the audience out there, make sure that you check out the previous uh, conversation between Dr. Jackson and myself. Uh, it was anti-racism work, George Floyd, Ahmed Arbery, and more. And that was the name of the episode with Dr. Tahari Jackson. And one of my proudest moments is that I was able to actually pronounce your name without, <laughs> without butchering it. Because I had this bad habit of butchering my guest name, which I always feel bad about. You know, So I'm just going to try to reach out to like John Smiths and stuff like that going forward because I just can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't mess those up. So. But I, so, I mean, I'm Dr. Jackson, if that helps, like, uh, you yeah, don't have yeah. to, you know, but it's yeah. fine. <laughs> no. Well, I actually like, I actually like the uniqueness of your name. Uh, I, I like unique names, you know, any, any type of unique name, you know, uh, growing up here in the Northeast, it's mostly, and I'm not saying this in a negative way, it's mostly uh, Irish Catholics, yeah. right? So you meet all Johns and Mikes and, 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 and Steves and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Again, that's not a slight on anyone's name or no. anything. I'm just saying. No, no. But so when I meet people, you know, uh, with African names or with uh, unique names such as yourself, or even you know, uh, really Eastern European names, right? It's it's really it's it's nice to meet some 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 diversity. You know, even my name is Lawrence. You know, some Anglican name or whatever. So, <laughs> so, <clears throat> so. So to the audience out there, make sure you checked out the, those episodes, uh, the audio versions on Captain Hunter's podcast available, Apple uh, podcast, Google Play, Spotify and wherever podcasts are available. Um, and please consider supporting Captain Hunter's podcast. I am retired, so I don't want to live out in the woods. Uh, so please support, support Captain Hunter's podcast through Cash App, PayPal, Venmo. Um, a dollar an episode, 50 cents an episode, something like that. I've been putting out eight episodes a month without I didn't even realize I was doing. So uh, if you guys could do something, five, $10 a month or something along those lines, uh, I really would appreciate it, really would appreciate it. Uh, and make sure you rate, subscribe, and share Captain Hunter's podcast, right? So uh, I'm getting used to this uh, kind of uh, intro type of thing you can see, yeah. <laughs> you know, I got to put it out there, otherwise, otherwise it won't get out there um yes so to hello to the viewers out there and uh emory j mill says yes dr jackson is sunshine yes she is she is she is sunshine in in, in a human form right she oh is just <laughs> to be clear, um, that's my former student from the University of Maryland College Park, and I can always count on him to support me. So, and, okay. and part of me is like, you paid all that money to hear me lecture. Aren't you finished, you know, hearing me lecture? So, yeah, he's he's a real one. <laughs> okay. Well, that, that means something, right? Because he paid you. Now now he just wants to do it for free. Just for free. Just, just you know, just a raise sunshine. I can imagine just sitting in your class. And I probably would I probably would have left that class thinking, man, I could take this world, right? I could, we could just do nothing I can't do. This, this this woman has so inspired me <laughs> so so i appreciate it um so to to anyone out there um we are on a special uh, platform so we are streaming on to youtube facebook and periscope 
Um, so I cannot see you and we, neither one of us can see you. So make sure that you say hi, just like Emery did, or give us a thumbs up or something along those lines. Uh, so that way we, you can, we can acknowledge you. And if you have questions for Dr. Jackson, uh, we can, uh, we can make sure that we get to your questions. So Dr. Jackson, yes. let's get into it. All right. Let's get into it. So once again, you wrote another stunning piece uh, that I read in Medium. Uh, is that where you publish it at or is, or is it other places as well? Yes. Um, I All summer long, I was trying to um, get together drtahari.com. That is coming actually at the end of the month. So okay. that website is going to have a blog and uh, people who enjoy my writing can go there. So, yeah. So it'll that's coming later in the month. Very good. Okay. So in the meantime, you wrote this piece in, it was on medium, but it wasn't anywhere else like in time or, or USA. No, okay. no, no, it was on medium. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so again, I, I have it this time because, <laughs> uh, <laughs> because sometimes I don't have it. So yeah. it's called, I'm an anti-racist trainer and Trump canceled me. Here's why I'm dangerous in quotations, but hopeful. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> awesome title. So you and I, so once again, once I saw it, I, I broke up my cell phone and was like, oh, I got I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta talk to her. Um, so let's talk about, first of all, uh, Trump canceling this anti-racist training. And I didn't know about it until the debate, uh, the presidential debate, where he probably had COVID at the time, or we don't know yet, or nobody's telling. We'll get into that a little bit later. So he, tra he canceled his training. What were your yeah. thoughts when he canceled the training? So, um, so to be specific, um, I, I got wind of it on September 5th, uh, uh, just, you know, about a month ago. And I believe that it's called um, the Executive Order on Combating Race and Sex Stereotyping. Um, I, I, I hope that's um, I hope that's the correct term, because I, I just want to make sure that we're all talking about the same executive order. But he essentially what happened was. Um, you know, he essentially for branches of the government that are affected by his executive orders, because federal employees and officials have let me know that there are that that, that doesn't affect everyone. So we'll, we'll talk about that later. But he essentially said we're not going to spend taxpayer dollars and federal funds on diversity training and specifically anti-racism training and specifically critical race theory. Um, and he uh, said that it was unpatriotic. He said that it was un-American. Later in the first presidential debate, he said that what we ask people to do in those trainings is, is insane. And he said that it was sick. And so basically what he did was he said, we are not, we are stopping all training efforts that relate to diversity and anti-racism training. So, um, and that affects, by the way, um, that affects not only people within the federal government, but it affects contractors. Um, it affects uh, federal fund grantees, right? So if you've run, if you've, if you've won a federal block grant, for example, or if you've, you know, benefit from that funding, um, that, you know, people are confused about what it, it affects, you know, has a ripple effect for affecting universities and, and industry. So I've got a copy of an industry letter here. And, and so it, 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 it has more, it has a larger ripple effect than I think he understood, or maybe he did understand because his point was to not talk about racism and not specifically to talk about historicized racism, institutional racism, and, um, you know, and how people can, can, can be less racist. Um, so yeah, I, I, I am disappointed by that, but I have some other thoughts, which is why, which is why I read, uh, which is why I wrote the article. Very nice. What do you think? And I know none of us can read his mind. Mind. 
I know none of us can read his mind. What do you think was the catalyst behind this type, this this memo? I mean, besides you all being dangerous and, and <laughs> what do you think? I mean, do you think someone was in his ear? What 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 do you think that what do you think that was about? So, you know, let me just let me set up my answer this way. And I hope this isn't sort of roundabout, but you know, I've been to the White House several times, just sort of like physically in the White House, and I know how you know close the West Wing is and the EEOB. And so I would imagine that every time there is some sort of national crisis or national dialogue, someone comes into the Oval Office with a, with a, a, an option package, right? A decision-making option package. And they say, President Trump, on this hand, on the left hand, we, this is the most appropriate thing to do and say at this time. This is timely, it's informed by science, it's backed by data, it's evidence-based, it's empathic, and uh, it's informed, right? Oh, yeah? On the, hand, on the one hand, here's the thing that 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 an excellent leader would do. On the other hand, here is almost like over here we have almost like an inverse Hippocratic oath, where not only are you going to do some harm, but you're going to worsen the situation. It is not empathic. It is uninformed. It is not backed by science. So which would you choose? And I feel like, unfortunately, right, I, I, and this is not going to be a Trump bashing session for me because that's unproductive. I mean, I mean, I, I'm actually able to go along with some of his programs and views. So it's I, that's not helpful. But I feel like more times than he should, he tends to gravitate to the thing on the right. And let me just give you some examples. Right. So in 2017, we had an army sergeant with David Johnson who uh, lost his life in like a Tonga, 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 Tonga battle in Niger. And instead, so the left-hand option was, hey, this, there's a recently traumatically widowed woman. Her name is Maisha Johnson, the wife of LaDavid. And what you should say is thank you for your sacrifice as a military family. Thank you for his sacrifice. We will honor his, his, his legend and his legacy. And we are so sorry that this happened. And then over here you have, I mean, he knew what he was signing up for, losers and suckers. Right? So there's that. So then the second example is, okay, we have Charlottesville, right? We have a group of, 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 of sort of neo-Nazi white supremacist, uh, uh, you know, uh, protesters, and they literally murder a, a, a young lady by the name of Heather Heyer. So she literally loses her life trying to sort of be an anti-racist protester. What we could have said to her, her mother, right? She was survived by her mother. Thank you so much for raising a young lady who was courageous and bold enough to live her truth of being an anti-racist. We are so sorry that this happened to you. And we are going to continue to do, you know, to hold national dialogue and to work on our racial relations in this country. Okay. That we, that's the appropriate thing. And over here you have, well, I mean, there were good people on both sides. <laughs> okay. And then finally, this is the most relevant example. This is what we're talking about. So, the left-hand response to what's happening now is, Mr. President, we need you to read the room. The country is in pain and they are suffering. We, the country is literally on fire based on man-made climate change, but we are also in turmoil. People in 50 states have now protested racism, disproportional uh, you know, police brutality and racism and murder in the institution of law. And so this is literally the largest civil rights movement in history. So people are in pain, people are protesting in the streets. So what we need you to say is, we are going to continue the national dialogue on race. We are going to 
you know, come up with action plans. We're going to do a racial equity audit in the federal government. We are going to have block grants where I'm going to have a secretary of racial equity and social justice, a cabinet level position. Right. So here are all those things, the bevy of things he could have done on the left, if you will. And on the right, we have let's cancel all racism and anti-racism training, you know, all diversity training at the very moment in history when we need it the most. When, it, when everyone is equally outraged because something is amiss, right? In our criminal justice system, in policing, in law enforcement. For the first, for one, you know, another time in history, right? Because we were, we were ready to talk about this in the 60s. But everyone is outraged. Everyone saw Ahmaud Arbery get gunned down in his own area, in his own neighborhood. Everyone saw George Floyd die like a dog in the street. We are, we are still trying to understand how, you know, Breonna Taylor's walls got more justice than she did, even though she literally got shot in her sleep. So, so, I mean, so at the very moment in history when it would be most helpful to not only resurrect, but really to amplify and enhance the national dialogue and then come up with a bevy of solutions and programs and reforms that, that really eat away at institutional racism, this administration decides that it's unpatriotic and that they are going to essentially defund this training. And so that's what's so disappointing about, about this leadership at this time. Um, so I, I hope that answered the question, but I know we're going to talk more about, you know, why I think it was a huge mistake. Uh, you certainly answered the question. Uh, and to the audience out there, if you guys have any questions going forward, many people may not even know about this. Um, so, so let's get into it. Um, what, what do you think, what do you think the ramifications are going forward with this? What do you think about that? Do you mean as in like the consequences of people sure, just? Sure, yeah. sure, sure. I, well, you know what? Okay, so this, this would actually, um, so this would be a good time to bring up the points in my article. So I'm just, if you don't mind, I'm just going to kind of get into that because I, I answer this question, right, of why it's so important to keep going and not only to keep, you know, continue whatever diversity and equity and inclusion and belonging efforts we had before, but at this moment in history, when people are, are, are literally, you know, they are clamoring to have the dialogue. I, as a diversity cult consultant, I get called every day. Can you come and talk to us about racism and hiring? Can you talk to us? We have low morale. Our African-American employees are suffering. You know, can we, you know, so can you help us strategize with how to sort of get through this time? So I just, I, I brought up these three points in the piece and, and I thought I would mention these now because they really do answer your question. So one of the things that high quality sort of diversity training and anti-racism work does is that it rests people out of their tendency to just talk about surface level racism, right? Which is interpersonal relations. We love to have implicit bias training. We love to have unconscious bias training. We love to just sort of say, okay, we're gonna work on interpersonal relationships. We're gonna work on microaggressions, right? So the way we treat each other is really the crux of the work we need to do. And that's important. But good anti-racism training, good diversity training, helps people understand that something as monstrous as racism, it's a multi-headed hydra. So there's individual racism, there's institutional racism and things like policies, everything from how you can wear your hair to how people, you know, sort of get promoted, how people get hired, that kind of thing. Um, and then you have cultural racism, which is sort of the fear that people have, especially of black people, because our color alone is a threat. 
And then we've got larger issues like socio-historical racism, which is, you know, like black athletes, for example, people throw bananas at us, you know, and people liken us to monkeys and gorillas and primates because the science of the day for so many centuries has said that black people are literally closer to animals and specifically monkeys than they are to humans. That's why we only got to be three fifths of a person. Right. So the first thing is that good anti-racism training, good diversity training doesn't allow you to stay in the area of kindness campaigns. Yes, it is incredibly important for us to treat each other well at work, but that's not all there is. Right. That's not all there is. The second thing um, is that, you know, really good diversity training, really good anti-racism work shifts the burden away from people of color and specifically black people. Right. And what I mean by that is when I do this work, I always work with the group that has the most power. So we talked about this before. If I'm going to work on anti-sexism, I work with men. If I'm going to work on homophobia, I work with straight people. And if we're going to do the work of anti-racism, then I do that work primarily with white people because white people have the most racial power. So instead of getting together all your people of color in an organization, overburdening them, making them serve on a task force, a working group, a diversity committee, making them spend extra time coming up with readings and recommendations and celebrations for your heritage month, I actually end up working with white people to say, here's how to set up an anti-racist workplace. Here's how you can be better allies and accomplices for the people of color around you. And for once, the people of color get to be in their offices, writing and being productive and publishing and flourishing and do all, doing all those things, because the real work of anti-racism is with the group that has the most racial power. And then finally, the third um, point that I made is that, um, you know, racism is a form of bondage and anti-racism sets you free. It sets white people free because it's a more honest way of living. It's an opportunity for you not to feel guilty about your power and, and your privilege. It's an opportunity for you to claim your privilege and claim your power so that you can conscientiously co-opt it and use it for good, right? So you can co-opt your power. There's power in power. So we know from the first civil rights movement, right, where even white people were getting lynched and hosed and, and, and bitten by dogs, we know that the collective power of all of us in cross-racial coalition accomplishes, accomplishes more than just people of color and especially more than people, um, black people. And then finally, it's just, you, you know, racism costs you your humanity and that's too expensive. So one of the things that diversity and anti-racism training does is that it allows you to live a more honest and a more fully human life because you're not actively oppressing people, even if you're just trying to be ignorant about it. Right. Even if you're just trying to willfully be willfully ignorant and say, I don't see kids, I just see color or I'm colorblind or we should just all get along or there's only one race, the human right? like you may not be a malicious and overt Klansman or neo-Nazi, but you but if you're not actively dismantling racism, you are actively benefiting from it and you are and you're and you're not living sort of you know the best life that you could. So I just want to say that the consequence of this executive order is that we just continue to do exactly what we're doing now and what we've been doing so that we continue to have the same outcomes. We're going to see more videos of innocent, unarmed black people losing their lives. We're going to see more people in federal agencies and other organizations not thriving and leaving. You're, you know, you're trying to retain this diverse workforce, 
Um, and you're going to end up losing the very people that you're trying to attract and retain. So the consequences are major. Um, and I know you didn't ask me this, but I just want to say, even when you think about the data, the data about diversity are on our side. The science of diversity and the and team science, based on what we know about how groups formulate um, the best solutions to complex problems, that requires diversity, biodiversity, neurodiversity, diversity, diversity of life experience. So even if you can't go down the road of the moral and the democratic imperative, you can't even deny the science. You can't even deny the science that it's best to have a diverse um, workforce. Um, so yeah, I just I just wanted to offer those three points because um, because those are the consequences of, of, of following this order. Um, and then I can give you some examples of resistance if we talk about that. We will talk about that because you <laughs> want to talk about. Um, so <laughs> uh, so so you, I, I was reading some other stuff and was talking about just exactly what you were talking about the about the science, and that actually companies actually make more money. The morale goes up. Uh, amongst these employees and everything like that. So I don't know. Once again, we neither one of us knows if he actually digested this information and said, "Listen, you you know when when you have this diversity training, uh, the morale goes up amongst all these different people, white people included, and and the companies make more money." He definitely should have listened to that. I mean, if he doesn't listen to anything else, I mean, so so uh, so we'll get into that. Uh, and I just want to say hello to everyone once again, uh, Emery, to Awo, my man Sean, Zakia, uh, and Lavanda Sweeney. Uh, that's another ray of sunshine there. She's uh, uh, another one. She's she, uh, she, if you're a ten, she's like a nine point five on on the oh. on the bubbly on the bubbly scale there. Well, yeah, comparison so. <laughs> is the point. So I'm not yeah. going to compare. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so she says, uh, Lavanda says, uh, clarify the most racial power. What do you what do you mean by that? Yeah. So no, that, that, that's actually, I, I mean, that's great. So, so one of the things, one of the ways I do my diversity training and one of the ways that I approach this work is that we have to recognize that as individuals, we are multiply identified, right? So in my one body, I have multiple identities, some of which render me advantaged and empowered and maybe even privileged and others of which don't really do anything for me. They render me marginalized, um, minoritized and actually disadvantaged. So what I mean by the most racial power, we can go on any identity, right? So if you are, for example, you know, a straight person in this country, if you're a straight person, you've got the most power sort of, you know, based on your sexual identity, right? You, you, I mean, because we, we are a heteronormative society and we've decided that straight people are normal, right? We've normalized that. So, and if you are a man, you have the most gender-based power. That's why every president, Every president since the inception of this country has been a man. And now that we have a vice presidential candidate who is a woman, it's blowing people's minds, right? I mean, we've had other, you know, Geraldine Ferraro, other women, you know, Sarah Palin. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not erasing their accomplishments. But basically what I'm saying is along every identity, there's a dominant group and then there's everyone else. And racially, white people have the most racial power. Because we live in a, in a society that's that's dominated, you know, by white racial dominance. So what I meant by that is they have the most as as the favored group, as the normalized group, as the group who controls most of what happens in this country, access to finance, institutions, the law from lawmakers to law enforcers. 
When I say they have the most racial power, it means that they have the most, they have the greatest ability to, to create anti-racist conditions because they have the, the greatest ability to create racist conditions. And it's so weird, right? Because, you know, if, you, if you're in the dominant group, you're both the problem and the panacea. If you're a man, you both can cause sexism, but if you learn to be a good ally and accomplice for women, you can cause an awful lot of, of anti-sexism, right? You can dismantle sexism. So if you're a white person, you know, you've got an incredible amount of power based on the value of your whiteness and the power therein, right? But you also have power to dismantle racism. So that's what I meant, the most racial power. Very good. No, that's that certainly clarifies things, and Lavanda says that clarifies things for her as well. So let's continue with that with that theme of power. Yeah. Frederick Douglass years ago said, uh, "Power, power is nothing without a demand." Without a demand. So are we going to? Um, is it realistic to expect people to give up this power? You know what? So I I have so semantics semantics matter, right? Language shapes thought. I don't know how I feel about people saying, well, white people have to surrender power or share power. It's not pie, right? So so if we think about justice and human rights and civil rights, it's not pie, it's not fixed. So more for you doesn't mean less for me, right? Like more civil rights for you doesn't mean fewer for me. So I, I, I don't know how I feel about people saying surrender power. I think that what, what the way I like to think about it is I think we should have proportional representation, right? So for example, in Congress, we should have at least 52% female lawmakers because that's what the entire world looks like, right? That that would be that would make sense for the people who are making decisions. I think the Supreme Court, you know, and all parts of government should have more working class people, right? Or people who, you know, grew up poor but never forgot what it was like to be poor, right? Like I think it needs more socioeconomic diversity. So, I mean, I, when I say, you know, when people say share power or surrender power, I you know, let me just say this. People of color aren't looking to take anything from you if you're white. Can you say that again? Can you say people, that again a little bit louder? <laughs> we are not looking to take anything from you. We are not looking to take anything. We are looking to experience American freedom. We are looking to experience, you know, um, liberty and the same freedoms that white people and men and straight people and Christians and all the other able-bodied people, right? We are looking to enjoy our civil liberties and our freedom equally. That's not taking away from anyone else's freedom. So I just, you know, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I think the only other way that I could describe it is this, right? Um, and then maybe that'll take us down a red hole, but let me just say it. So. I just think it's interesting how, you know, sometimes when people think about diversity and when they think about like sort of what I call inverted our turnism, they're like, oh, people of color, if we allow them to come into power, you know, they're going to they're they're going to treat us poorly. They're going to treat us the way we know we treat them now or they're going to take over all the good stuff. So let me just let me just make this comparison. So, I, you know, I went to one of my degree, I went to Harvard as an undergraduate. And when I was there 20 years ago, we had 1700 spots. Right. And so one of the worries about affirmative action is that, but if you open it up too much or if you lower the standards, you know, you could end up with a, a class, an entire class of 1700 people, you know, who were all people of color. They would be Asian and they would be black and they would be of African descent. And my question about the question is, okay, first of all, why is that problematic? 
because Harvard's been open since 1636 and nobody had issues with the original racism of having wealthy, white, uh, non-Jewish men, right? And then the other thing is, what would make you feel entitled to every slot at Harvard? To the point that you don't want anyone of color or anyone who violates meritocratic principles to get there. When it comes to Congress, it's literally a millionaire's club and I don't begrudge their success, but if you say to, if you say we should have more women in Congress, we should have more people of color, we should have more masters of other languages, we should have pe more people who are differently able, we should have more LGBTQ plus people. What people would gawk at that and say, "Oh my gosh, we can't just have we can't have okay." But what would make you think that every seat in Congress should go to a white man? What would make you think that every president? should be a white man. So the question there becomes that, you know, that that's more of a question of, of on a discussion about entitlement. But I always taught my students to not only question, but to question the questions. And I think sometimes we ask the wrong questions. Very good. So I'm going to, I'm going to push back a little, well, not push back because I agree with you, but I want to, I want to you to address this. Um, so th that's the pie that we're talking about, right? We said, we said it wasn't pie and I agree with you, but there's only a, you know, a hundred Senator seats four hundred and fifty, whatever 51 or whatever it is, uh, congressional seats. So if we give it to all these people, 1700 seats, it's Harvard. If, if it's not all males, uh, white males. Okay. If we open it up and now there's 1200, whatever number we want to throw in there, it's less for us. And I think that that's the problem. They think that it's less for us. Affirmative action. This is what the lawsuit's about. It's, it's lowering the standards as they, as they think, or I think in some cases it was, which I don't agree with, but whatever. Um, so this is the pie. They don't want to give up college seats. They don't want to give up co congressional seats. They don't want to give up seats on their city boards, state boards, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's the pie that they don't want to give up. Okay. So um, my response to that is um, that, that what you just described is the embodiment of what I would call um, reverse racism. Right. Like if we open the floodgates or change the rules, then I as a white person or I as a man or I as a straight person or I as a Christian or I as an able bodied person would then be discriminated against. OK, so you're outraged by the notion of reverse racism. Why are you so content with the racism we have today? Because it benefits me. OK, because you're <laughs> in your power and you have control. And the irony. Why should I give it up? <laughs> okay, but, okay, so, so, so then, so then, to take that all the way down the logical road. So let's say Harvard decides, you know what? For the class of twenty twenty two or twenty twenty three, um, we're only going to admit black males, right? Like we, we just we've decided that based on our long tradition of having males. I mean, because it started as a seminary, we are only going to admit black males. Does that mean that everybody else who's eligible to go to Harvard can't go to college? Right. Like, so, so I know you're saying like, oh, but, but the pie is Harvard. Like it's either Harvard or bus. But again, this goes back to the argument about entitlement. What would make you think that you are entitled to a slot at Harvard because you are white? Right. What would make you think that after, let's see, 2020 minus 1636, probably about 400, right? What would make you think? that after centuries of literally being a hundred percent of the class that in 2020 you can't go to stanford or you can't go to yale because you know what other people of color have to do every day 
go to other colleges because they're not, they don't feel entitled and they don't get admitted. So again, I mean, I, it, it's, it's not a pie, right? Because at the end of the day, we're talking about high quality Ivy League education. What would make you think that the rightful place, that the rightful composition of Harvard is white males? What, like, again, we have to, we have to think about how to decolonize our thinking. And we've got to think a little bit more about this entitlement argument because it's making people think that they're going to have to give up something that they won't even admit they have. Right. That's the irony of it all. Right. But at the end of the day, I, I think that they do up? think that they have it, though. I think that they do think that they have it. I think that they think that they have the ability to not only the colleges, but I can go into a job. I don't have to compete. I've, I've read I, I read a lot of I probably read too much of of racist literature quite honestly and they're saying that uh yeah why can't i just live in in these communities why can't i uh entitlement reform what um um i've heard racists say they don't have any problem with with entitlements or or government helping people but they just don't want it to go to black people that is that is literally the argument that is literally the argument about 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 obamacare that, that's the argument and so they there, there's something in certain people that just don't want to share. I know you keep saying it's not a pie, <laughs> but I'm going to push back and say I think that they think that it is a pie, and that they think that it that it, it's all it, it's I'm if I, I I I would be willing to cut off my my nose despite my cut off my nose despite my face, right? Uh, nobody gets health care because I don't want black people to get it. That is that is insane, irrational thinking. We're living through a pandemic, and they still want to gut this thing. It's still in the courts and all this kind of stuff right now. So this is this is the way that, unfortunately, that I think a lot of people think. Um, th they would rather people not get stimulus checks because un undeserving people are going to get them. And so mm -hmm. I think that I think that that's part of the problem. I want to, to talk a little bit about um, the treating them badly argument. Um, if if we allow certain people to become the dominant persons, then they're going to treat us the way that we treated them. Can you expound upon that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, this is kind of, a, this is going to sound hyperbolic, but like, hear me out. So, you know, my background is as a professor and as a, you know, sort of researcher who does this grant funded research. And one of, you know, one of the things that I did for years was to follow anti-racist white people, right? First, anti-racist teachers, the urban teachers who work in hoods all over the United States. Then I followed the, the people who teach them. Then I followed a, you know, a few public intellectuals who identify as anti-racist white people. And I was trying to understand why it was so easy for them, like a, you know, a Jane Elliott, a Tim Wise, a Christine Sleater, a Paul Gorski, a Joe Fegan, right? I was trying to understand why it was so easy for them to buy fully into anti-racism because inherently I was like, oh my gosh, it doesn't benefit you. Like, like you said, it's a pie, you're gonna have to give something up, right? And so one of the things that came out of that work was they were able to say that part of the reason that white people can't fully buy into anti-racism is number one, because they know whether they're willing to say it or not, how people of color are being treated right now. They will claim that all is well, they will claim um, uh, like they'll they'll make a meritocratic argument, right? Like if you just work hard, you can overcome any anything, right? If you just do the right thing, if you just interact with the police nicely, you will get a pass and get a warning and you will drive away in your car with no consequence, just like me, right? So a lot of white people are like, no, 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 there are no problems. But I think but what came out of my work was the greatest fear that white people have 
is that they is that when things are equitable, right? When we finally do reach the state of 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 equity, right, where people are actually getting not only what they deserve but sort of what they needed the whole time. Um, they are concerned not only that they're going to lose something, that they're going to surrender something, that they're not going to have power and control, but that we are going to treat them poorly and that we are going, its again, inverted our turnism. We are going to treat them in the future the same way that they treat us now. Now, here's the beauty and here's why that's wrong, right? Um, you know, when I think about a leader that I want to have in my life, when I think about a president, because this is a democracy, when I think about even a boss or a CEO of a comp of a company, give me a boss who has been through some things, right? Give me a president who's paid half a utility bill. Give me a president who's had their phone cut off and their electricity turned off. Give me a president who's had to eat a mustard or a ketchup sandwich. Give me a president who had to drink cool, uh, clear Kool-Aid, which is just water and sugar, right? But, and, and the reason I want a, a representative you know, leader like that is because they understand the struggles of poverty. If they're a person of color, they might understand the struggles of racism. They might, if it's a woman like, like Kamala Harris, she might understand some of the glass ceiling limitations of being a woman and only getting paid 75 cents on a dollar. So if, so if anything, give me an empathic leader. Give me an empathic leader who understands the common American struggle. And this is what we're seeing in the house, in the White House now. We don't have an empathic leader. We have a leader who's steeped in billions of dollars. We have a leader who went to a private, right? a private military school surrounded by other, you know, advantage and empower. Right. So, so we're seeing the results of that. And that's why he can't relate. And that's why he's out here canceling the very diversity and equity and inclusion, anti-racism training that would heal our country because he can't relate. So I don't think, again, white people need not worry that we are going to treat you the same way you treat us. Um, I don't think that's the nature of anybody who has truly been oppressed. Um, and again, we're not looking to take anything from you. <laughs> so I, I think they, I think their fears are um, greatly exaggerated. Well, well said, well said. And I hope that listening to you uh, <laughs> and others, seriously, seriously, um, can can help to calm and assuage these fears because because it, it, as you mentioned, it, it's a sort of slavery and it it, it inhibits us all. Mm -hmm. um, I think that people should read what was that book. Uh, when affirmative action was white. Yes, uh, by Ira Katz Nelson. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really good book. And there was no issues with, uh, you know, GI bills and yes. Homestead Acts and all this kind of yes. stuff. But as soon as we, okay, we want to create a great society and all the time, whoa, 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 you guys are being racist. Uh, you know, what? <laughs> so, yeah. um, do you think that there's any, uh, oh, let, me, let me get to some uh, comments here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, let's see. <clears throat> Again, I want to thank everyone for coming on. Uh, Joe Norfleet says she's saying something. That's my name right there. Yeah. Uh, Emery says uh, Frederick Douglass was a feminist yes. and a supporter of suffrage for women. Yes. That was that that was that came all down to the voting, right? Wasn't there a situation? Everything was all cool until until black men got the vote before white women, right? That was that became a problem. Yeah. That became a problem, right? And here it is a pie again, right? Well, we'll support you guys. We're on the same side. Whoa, wait a minute now. We don't we don't want y'all getting too too far ahead of us. So uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. Lavanda says, uh, right, the entitlement is is illogical. Uh, I, I do want to 
I, I another time we'll, we'll continue with that because I, <laughs> because I listen to the to them to them and they speak and I really shouldn't because I then I have trouble sleeping at night when I listen to these fools rant and rave and stuff. Understood. Understood. <laughs> uh, y'all, this is good. Thank you again, uh, Lavanda. Uh, insane and irrational are perfect ways to describe their thoughts and behaviors, and it is a dangerous way of thinking and behaving as well. And this is what is causing so so much of. of what's going on today. Maybe we'll get into that, what's going on today, the, you know, the attempted kidnapping or the plot to kidnap oh. the, gov the governor there. Yeah. I have, a, I, I, have that, I use that photo in my article for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. For a reason. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have an expert coming on to talk about specifically, you know, that kind of thing. I, I, we had scheduled this before, yeah. for that. Um, he did ask me if I went to speed it, bump it up, but I was like, nah, we'll just keep it. Cause <laughs> I don't want to get ahead of myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have a narcissist in the White House. Tell us how you really feel there, uh, <laughs> uh F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, wrote about uh, racial dominance and entitlement in The Great Gatsby. Gatsby? Gatsby, I think it is. When uh -huh. we had uh, Tom B Buchanan ranting about racist book he read. <laughs> uh, Teresa Collins says, I broke narcissist. To, <laughs> to, uh, uh, and Lavanda says, Dr. Jackson, you are amazing. Uh -huh. Um Yes, I needed that today. <laughs> I needed that. <laughs> um, do you think that this is going that his decision to cancel this could have ripple effects, unintended ripple effects, right? Not only the increase of possible mm -hmm. or, or the the thought process that it's okay to do these things, right? I don't have to the president is a behind these type of things, so I can I can do I as a manager can say these things or I as someone else can say these type of things. Do you have, and also that's one part of the question. And do you think it could have unintended ramifications and, and ripple effects as far as LGBT communities, women, uh, all that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, I, so the first thing I'll say, so the other part of the research that I was doing um, before I left academia was I was looking at the best, most critically conscious, wokest, culturally sustaining teachers, right, in schools. But that research, you know, ended up being uh, not just a sort of study of what made them stay and, and dedicate themselves to education past the kind of five to eight year attrition mark, but it ended up being a study of leadership. Because as it turned out, the greatest, you know, the most influential factor, the most salient thing they would say about whether they were gonna keep teaching, whether they're gonna stay at that school or leave the profession, was their relationship with the highest ranking leader in that building, which was the principal, right? So they, and, and what, I, what I learned from that study is, okay, well, leaders are tone setters in chief. So people say things like, oh, you know, poop rolls, rolls downhill, but you know what else rolls downhill? Um, advocacy, activism, justice, um, and critical consciousness. So if you have a leader who prioritizes, I mean, literally the CEO of a company the president of a company, um, the, the the chairman of a board. If you have the leader at the very top who's saying, this is valuable, right? Like uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, accessibility, um, anti-racism training, this is valuable. That actually has a ripple effect within the organization in a positive manner. And similarly, when you have sort of, I hate to say it, but sometimes he seems like a racist in chief, when you have a tone setter, no. well, I mean, that sounds, again, this is not a Trump-passing <laughs> discussion because that's, that's unproductive, but, right. but when you have a tone setter who's saying, 
oh no, like I'm gonna use all the words. Every time a, a woman of color even indicates that she doesn't like me, I'm gonna call her a pig or a monster or a not so smart person or whatever derogatory terms he uses, right? So he, he sets the tone for how we can continue to find things acceptable or not. So I just wanna start there. But I mean, so I wanna say two things, two, two things because we're, we're on the cusp of an election, right? And so every time I write an article, I'm like, yeah, I'm excited about voting. Make sure you vote. Doesn't matter for whom. You just need to get out and vote, right? But 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 so two things have happened, right? I think that his his executive order in many ways is largely performative and political because it was an attempt, it's kind of a last ditch attempt to let his base know exactly how he feels. This was his last commitment to them that he was going to dismantle anti-racism training. He was gonna put a pause, right, on all diversity, equity, inclusion training. Um, and that was a, a signal to them that they should really come out and support this man because, you know, that's dangerous. That's unpatriotic, right? Like a lot of Americans who vote for him, I believe, really sort of buy into the idea that training like that is 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 deleterious somehow to the nation. So that's one thing. Um, but I also think that maybe he's aware that he's not going to be in office. And so part of the, what I write at the end of my articles is, I hope post November 2020, I'm able to witness the ban on the ban on anti-racism training, right? Because I honestly believe that if there is a change in regime, if there's a different political party, if it's if it's Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, I think one of the first things they will do, hopefully, is to rescind the order. As a matter of fact, um, you know, and I, I don't know if this is appropriate to mention here, but there is incredible resistance from from a variety of organizations. I was reading, uh, I think it's the Federal News Network, and apparently a group of 11 uh, industri industry associations got together and wrote a letter to uh, the OMB and to the Secretary of Labor Places like the Alliance for Digital Innovation, the American Association of Advertising Agencies, the Software Alliance, the Cybersecurity Coalition, right? So 11 industry organizations got together and said, you know what, this doesn't work for us. And they're gonna continue writing those letters. I mentioned earlier the, the American Institute of Physics. You know their exemplary what their exemplary leadership was? They got together some of the most brilliant scientists in the world, right? 50 scientific organizations whose membership span not only the United States, but the whole world. And they got together and, and had 50 signatories and sent a letter to OMB saying, you need to rescind this. It's, it goes, it, it's antithetical to a moral and democratic imperative. It's not rooted in science at all. This is uh, hindering our work, which, you know, we're fervently trying to diversify physics and the physical sciences and, and science and STEM. And so you are in our way. <laughs> so, you're in our way. so I think even if he does get reelected, industry, like literal businesses who know the business case for diversity, which is what you mentioned earlier, and, uh, and academic institutions, right? And other scientific organizations who are like, excuse us, science is our jam. What you're not gonna do is have an or is have an executive order that is antithetical to science. We are scientists, like you need to trust us. So I, I think, I think I, whether he's reelected or not, I think that they're going to be after effects, but I'm excited about the positive act after effects. Yeah, I uh, there was an article. Uh, it's in USA Today. It says Trump executive order on diversity training royals uh, corporate America, yes. and that was published on uh, September 25th, 2020. 
Um, so, and then that's where a number, and I read a couple of other articles that were all saying the same thing, naming a bunch of uh, companies, as you just mentioned, uh, that are, are um, that are, you know, just really kind of pushing back and this type of type of thing. Um, can you, can you speak to the, I would say unintended, but yet intended consequences of how they would affect LGBT uh, communities, women, uh, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, so I, I know I focus a lot on anti-racism training because I really think that Trump thinks that anti-racist means anti-white. Um, and as I said in the article, um, you know, anti-racism training is not everybody against white people. It's everybody against racism, right? Everyone, all hands on deck against racism, not white people, right? So when we talk about things like diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, that to me is the umbrella that helps us understand the experiences of minoritized groups within any particular organization, right? So they're going to be affected. Minoritized groups are going to be affected by this, right? Women for certain, right? I'm coming from, so I've worked for, um, at the Department of Defense for about a year. Um, and, you know, when you think about when they talk about diversity, they're primarily talking about women because it's such a male dominated and male heavy organization. And sometimes they're talking about LGBTQ plus folks because we just got past don't ask, don't tell. Sometimes they're talking about faith, right? And faithism because they need Sikh soldiers and you know they need Muslim soldiers and they, they need a variety of people who speak a variety of language who can help us with our mission. So the, I'm surprised and I don't know, maybe I'm just late to the party, but I, I suspect that even the military will push back and say, we literally cannot pursue national and global security and peace based on this order, right? Because the so federal agencies have, you know, equal employment opportunity, but the equivalent for that is that for the military is equal opportunity. So they have sort of their parallel system to make sure that, you know, that people are included, that there's a grievance process. So I, I say look out for the military letter because if, if what if the military knows the science and the military knows that we cannot keep this country safe and we cannot protect and promote democracy if we don't have masters of other languages, masters of other cultures, immigrants, if we don't have even, un, you, you know, undocumented people can serve, right? So I, I'm looking for the military's response because that's one of the most diverse organizations in the world. And uh, and they're not going to have this if it's deleterious to their mission. They will not have it. Yeah. So and uh, again, you know, the military is struggling with uh, swastikas uh, or, or and uh, uh, the the Confederate flags and, and different yeah. military bases. And they, you know, some uh, generals are in agreement with change. Are you frozen? Oh, okay. No, no, <laughs> okay. Frozen. I'm back. I'm back. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, so, 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 yeah. So they're struggling with all that type of thing, and to pump out this, this, this order is just seems to me just to be one of the silliest ideas um, that that really could come. And I'm going to admit something: I did not know that we had military bases named after Confederate soldiers. I did not know that until six months ago or so. That to me is just insane, and and to to have that. Uh, to to send a black soldier such as myself or my son who's in the Air Force to yeah. some base that was named after someone who thought he should be enchained and, and who tried to actively tear down the United States is bananas to me. So I think that one of the ways that we heal that and get by that is to have this type of 
different types of training that you mentioned. And just to kind of piggyback more off of what you were saying, when I was uh, an implicit bias instructor um, at the PD, so all those people who are uh, reaching out to you, if they can't, if if they're so if, if you're too, if you're too busy, if you could give tell them give them my scraps, uh, give <laughs> send the scraps to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, if, if things get too busy for you, you, you got a couple scraps. Uh, you know, tell them about, the, tell them about this. Tell them about this. The second-rate guy up in Connecticut who used to do it. Anyway, uh, as soon as I pay off my student loan debt, my partner. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so what I what I taught that what I taught that. Um, I, I would always talk about the, exactly what you what you mentioned, right? This is not just a, this is just not another culture of diversity class or of of you know white people, black people being taught by a black cop or you know so you know because I always hear their eyes rolling in their head when I when I you know so I always talked about listen, this is how you treat other people, period, right? This is how um, uh, as you mentioned, you know, a Muslim person would treat an an, uh, an Asian person or if you come across uh, someone who's uh, mentally handicapped or artistic, right? So I want you to understand your approach to these particular people. How do you feel about LGBT uh, communities? How do you feel about, and so I don't want your actions because you have these internal and biases already about how you view other people. Uh, you shouldn't, you cannot react upon that. You cannot pull people over and refuse to give pretty ladies tickets but give them to those who are less attractive or, or give them to males or, or be more preferential to, to taller people. Right. So this, this idea of implicit bias training, um, goes, is, isn't just about race. It's about all these different things that we, that we think about people when we first meet them for the first time. And so that becomes very, very important that we don't act upon these things, particularly in law enforcement, particularly in the medical field, particularly in, in school teachers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I want to know, I want to know specifically from you, Dr. Jackson, what were you doing that was so dangerous, so unpatriotic? What were you doing? What were you telling people uh, that what were you doing that was so crazy that the president of the United States had, had to address it? What were you, what were you doing in these classes? <laughs> yeah, I, you know what? It's so funny. I When I was in graduate school, I actually had a professor who said, I, I'd written some piece, you know, and I have a photographic memory, so I remember everything I've ever read anyway. So that's what makes me a super nerd. But um, I had written some some paper and she just looked at me and she said to Hari, she said, you've been reading and that makes you dangerous. You've been reading and that makes you dangerous because we know that knowledge is power, right? So what I'm doing that's so dangerous is this. So first of all, I am helping people do their best work in peace. That's what's so dangerous, right? Because I know and you know that the way implicit bias, you know, and discrimination and sort of prejudice, you know, sort of manifests and gets instantiated is that it disrupts the peace. Like, People on jobs, and I say this about policemen, law enforcement officers, because I don't hate police, right? I also don't hate cops. People are doing the best they can with what they know at any given moment, right? And so my job as, as a professor and also as a teacher, you know, and now as a consultant and as a diversity officer is to just educate people about how they can do their best work in peace because isms disrupt our peace. Now, I one of the things that I started early on doing, you know, in my career was I would work with a lot of corporate uh, entities. I would work with like Fortune 500 companies. I still get calls from them, by the way. Um, but they would just say, can you come and do the business case for diversity? Like, can you, can you convince us why we should listen to you and why we should do what you're saying? Why should we give up our slice of the pie? That's you what know, they want well, to know. 
I mean, but, but, I mean, but also more realistically, like if you can convince us that this will help our profit margin and our bottom line, we'll do it. Like, if, but but you're gonna, we're gonna need to be brought over, right? And 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 again, when it comes to social justice and racial equity and all forms of sort of anti-oppression, the data are on our side. So it does. So what what diversity and anti-racism does is it optimizes your organization. Right. All those policemen who want to do the best job possible. Right. They want to optimize their performance. They don't want to be discriminatory. They want to get promoted to captain right? or chief. Right. They have they have goals for themselves. Racism gets in the way. Sexism gets in the way. Ableism, sizeism, all the isms, it gets in the way. And if you're a company, you know, first of all, attrition is expensive. So if people are leaving your organization because it's racist, sexist, transphobic, uh, ableist and all the things, you keep having to invest to rehire and recruit and 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 get recruiters and get you know sort of these independent firms and search you know organizations and you've got to re- you've got to keep retraining people over and over it's the same in education the retention of teachers is a problem because when you keep having to hire new ones and then it takes them years to learn you know their job that's as, as expensive so first of all attrition is expensive the other thing is i just read a study the other day and it, it was about employment. And what I love about young people and Generation Zers and millennials is that they uh, have a low tolerance for intolerance. And what that article said was 83% of young people, 83% of, Z, of millennials and Generation Zers will not take a job with an organization that is not expressly committed to racial equity and social justice. So you can't even get them in the door. Now these young people are saddled with crippling student loan debt 52% of people I think now are back home with their parents in large part due to the pandemic, but before that due to crippling student loan debt and they still won't come work for you if you don't value diversity. That to me is stunning, but that's also an opportunity. We have a younger generation of people who will not tolerate intolerance and they, and it's because they know the value of having a diverse team and diversifying and expanding their view having access to the full human record and really understanding how the world works and how various people live their lives. So, I mean, I what, the, what makes me so dangerous is that I have the data and the data are on our side. And I also am in pursuit of justice, truth, and peace. And, you know, if you're gonna keep skirting the issue and not having diversity training and not dealing with your EEO and your EO issues and your sexual harassment assault issues, you're just gonna keep spinning your wheels. Your morale is gonna be low your efficiency and profit margins are going to be lower and you're not going to be the best organization you can be. If your if your goal is to sell widgets, even if your widget is high quality public education or you actually sell widgets like you sell computers, you need diversity and anti-racism training and you need diversity, equity and inclusion. So, I mean, I can go into a whole list of other things, you know, that that companies would benefit from because I make this presentation all the time. The business case for diversity. Here's how it impacts your bottom line. Here's how you're not tapping into emerging markets. Here's how to market to people of color. Here's how to be racially sensitive. I've, one of the things I did this summer was I helped companies come up with their not only their solidarity statements, right? We recognize Breonna Taylor, we recognize the spate of virulent racism, but also come up with their action plans and their subsequent strategic plans. Okay, so what are you gonna do about it? Thank you for posting on Instagram that you feel our pain. So now organizationally, how will you commit? JP Morgan the other day committed $30 billion to diversify the financial industry. And if they can do it, so can everybody else. And and they know what to do with money. 
they analyze that every day. So I hope that answers the question. <laughs> I've heard other people, many other academics, uh, smart as or almost as smart as you, almost, almost, uh, say that they, they don't believe in institutional racism. There's no such thing that we eliminated this in the 60s and 70s and, and black people are free now. They just need to try harder. There's no such thing as institutional racism. Uh, what, what's your response to that? You know what? Um, <clears throat> I watched the vice presidential debate and Vice President Mike Pence actually did say that. He said something akin to that, which was, I don't inherently believe that there's implicit bias and that this is an inherently racist society, right? He said that to Kamala Harris, a biracial woman uh, of the law. Um, and I believe him, right? Everybody has their own story of how they are experiencing this country. I think what, pe what I get people to realize by signing up for my trainings and sort of having me as their consultant, is that you can be you can be two people in the same organization or the same federal agency or the same branch of the armed forces or the same nation and you can have vastly different experiences okay again it's not pie your story isn't necessarily a lie and false because mine is true right if you are a white person in this country and you can interact with the police however you like if you want to carry an AK-47 to a state capitol whilst plotting to kidnap and murder the governor, if you, Kyle Rittenhouse, want to take your uh, AR-15 and go shoot people in the street because you think you're doing democracy a service, um, Dylan Roof, if you want to walk into a church and shoot up nine people and still go get fast food on the way to prison, right? Like, you know, like, I, I understand that you get arrested as opposed to killed on the spot. We all understand that, right? But if I'm an unarmed black man like Ahmaud Arbery, if I'm an unarmed black man like Walter Scott, Rayshard Brooks, Jacob Blake, any number of black people who have been killed, then you need to understand that the way we interact with law enforcement is inherently different. It is vastly different. So I'm not out here trying to tell people that they're liars. Oh, I believe whatever story you're telling yourself. You know, part of privilege is if it's not a problem for me personally, then it's not a problem, period. So part of privilege is being able to deny the everyday lived experiences of people who aren't like you. Part of being a man is being able to say, I don't see what the problem is here, but then not having somebody put their hands on your waist every time they pass by you at work, right? I mean, or not being paid 74 cents on the dollar when everybody's getting paid, right? So, so, so again, part of privilege is saying, because this is not a problem for me personally, it's not a problem writ large. And so I believe these people in their stories. I, I believe them. Um, but I'm, I'm here to let you know that black people, women, all manner of minoritized groups, LGBTQ plus people, we are having vastly different experiences in this country. And that's why you've seen all these protests in the street. We're not protesting nothing. Right. So. I've heard this from from other black individuals, black conservatives, mm -hmm. uh, as well. In, I know I, I, <laughs> what. what <laughs> but let me get the question out. <laughs> what what would be your response to those particular people who saying it's us, our culture, um, 
And, I, and I'm not I'm not even saying I totally disagree with that. I mean, some things we do need to change before we look at other people, as Elijah Muhammad said, before we look at other people, we need to look at ourselves. Mm -hmm. what's, your, what's your what's your response to them who say, listen, um, uh, you know, it's not the 60s. And even even I told my son that we were we, my son and I were having a conversation and he says, you know, this is what's going on today. It's just like the 60s. And we're just as bad. I'm like, whoa, listen, <laughs> listen, mm -hmm. let's not get a, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's let's think about this. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not as bad as the 60s by any stretch of the imagination. You have the right to do whatever you want to do. Uh, mm -hmm. Go where you want to go to to a to a greater proportion and almost almost. Uh, uh, in, in, in complete freedom to do to do whatever. I mean, I've been all over most in many states in the country, many states in this country, not have these these crazy negative experiences. And I often watch YouTube videos where people are getting spit on and getting called the N word. I'm like, where is this happening at? I'm, I'm walking around going to going to uh, Home Depot. Nobody ever called me a, called me a nigger and spat on me. So why why is this happening? So 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 what's going on? What would you say to to more conservative black persons who are saying, listen, we can't keep crying racism. We have to do X, Y, and Z. Mm, okay, well, this is one of my favorite arguments, which is why I made my ugly face. Um, I, know. I, you, I had to look away because because. <laughs> uh -uh. um, okay, but so 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 on a, on a more serious note, um, as a black person in this country, I don't cause my own oppression. If I have the power to end racism and to end my own oppression, I would have done that a long time ago. So the fact that I can't. And the fact that we still have to be out here in a 50 statewide protest against racism, that lets you know that my sheer will is not enough. OK, this is the argument I make about the levels of racism. If, if people want to argue, well, you know, if we just treated each other better. No, no, no. If we were just nice to each other, there are enough interracial relationships that are consensual now. You would think that that would have solved racism. We've had a half black president. You would think that would. No. So it must be it must be deeper than that. So one of the things that I'd like to say in response to that is as a person of color and as a woman and as a minoritized group, even as just somebody who grew up experiencing poverty, um, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not broken and I don't need fixing. I'm not lazy. I'm not promiscuous. I don't cause my own sexual harassment and my own rape. If I'm black, I'm still nice to the police officers. I don't cause my own unprovoked death in police custody. So that lets you know that my sheer will to want to end those things are not enough. So, I mean, we were having this conversation, you know, I, again, I, I work with the physics and the physical sciences community. So, and the question that also often get asked is, asked is, why do more black people not join us? Like what's wrong with them, right? That's the old question. That's not the right question. My question about the question is, where are you as a community possibly being exclusive, right? It's, it's one thing to invite people to, the, to your table, but you have to give them something to eat, right? So what are you doing as a community that sort of keeps them out? Same thing in America, right? Like there are hardworking black people, there are hardworking women. We are participating in the American dream as best we can. We are trying to pull ourselves up by boots that we were never given. So many of us don't have boots to begin with, right? That's Martin Luther King. It's a cruel jest to say, pick yourself up by your bootstraps to a bootless man, right? So to your black conservative friends who have bought wholeheartedly into the notion of meritocracy, which is everything is fair. 
Justice is blind. Everybody is going to get their fair share if they do their fair amount of hard work. So then I say, well, then I'm waiting on those of us who have quote unquote made it to make it so for everybody else. We've got black congressmen. We at Tim Scott, right? The, the congressman of South Carolina or where. So, I mean, I, why doesn't he alone have the power to make everything accessible for us, right? Oh, so then it must not be in our individual hands. It must be embedded in uh, policies and laws. It must be embedded in inequitable education. It must be embedded in, the, in pay inequity and wage theft. It must be in, 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 uh, embedded in stereotyping and the fact that we're so shoot, you know, we're so quick to shoot a black person because we think they're dangerous. And it must be embedded of the science in the science that tells us that black people and people of color and women are inferior and they don't really deserve what everybody else gets. So, no, the remedy, I, I don't know what remedy they're suggesting, maybe to just kind of suck it up and keep going. Well, I, yeah, think that they're, I, I think that they're saying that. I don't know. I think that I think that they're saying that that it doesn't exist, right? It's it's mm-hmm. it's um, uh, some of the shootings that that we're alluding to are are, are certainly controversial. Um, uh, people acting badly, things like that. Uh, that there's no such thing as as uh, uh, they would say. They would point to a person like yourself, point to a person like myself, and say that we've made it. Uh, Lavanda is has a master's degree, uh, and she's a. Uh, I should know this. A therapist. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry, Levon. <laughs> I know you're on my show. Uh, you know, she's a counselor. Uh, so, um, um, so, so, you know, here we are making it, doing certain things. So they're saying, stop whining, stop complaining, and, and, and this, that, and the other. And, and so I'm, I'm just trying to give the other side of the argument there, um, as to, uh, as to what you know, what, why we're, why we're still dealing with this type of thing. Um, so, so that's that's kind of the argument that 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 I've heard so many many times. Look, can I just respond really quickly? I promise I'll be brief. Um, I mean, I'm never brief, but at least I'm good. Okay. Um, so, so the first thing I want to say is, um, you know, I, one of my professors. Uh, actually, I, I don't know if I ever got a chance to take his actual class, but um, I took a lot, you know, an American African American Studies class, and um, Henry Louis Gates, Doctor Henry Louis Gates Jr. This man was arrested on his own porch right? During the Obama administration, this man was arrested on his own porch. So what I think is interesting about the argument for people who think we've made it, like a LeBron James, you know, these really wealthy black male athletes, you can make it all you want. You can be as wealthy, you can be as erudite and brilliant as you want, but you will never be able to buy down your blackness. You will never not scare somebody with your blackness alone, right? So you can be wealthy, Again, you can be famous, you can have all the celebrity, but if you encounter somebody who doesn't know you, what they see in that moment is your blackness. So best of luck with that, okay? And then the second thing is, um, you know, I, I love how you said, listen, you know, you're a success. Dr. Jackson, you were sitting up here with, you got two degrees from Harvard, you got a PhD, you made it, okay? So what I, I actually tell this story as part of the work that I do, and I wrote a book chapter about it, right? Like the, about how schools literally structure inequality, how it's actually not the great equalizer. What I say in that talk is, you know, yes, I have achieved great things. I have done some really cool stuff. I did go to Harvard twice. I do have a PhD. Um, and so by all means, like if you look at my CV, it's like, oh, girl, you made it. Like Dr. Jackson, Dr. Jackson, you made it. 
But so what I'm saying, you know, what what Jeff Duncan Andrade, another professor uh, out, I think it's San Jose State University, Dr. Jeff uh, Duncan Andrade, he would say, you know, roses do pop up from the concrete, right? They absolutely do. Um, but don't tell me the concrete doesn't exist. I'm not here because of the way education in this country works. I'm here in spite of it, right? I'm here in spite of it. So I use that story which I will not allow to be co-opted by anyone because that's my story to tell. You don't know what I had to overcome unnecessarily to get here because it shouldn't have been this hard. It should not have been this hard to do this. Right? I should not have had to work four jobs in college and, and, and still graduate magna cum laude. Like that's ridiculous, right? That's ridiculous. But basically what I like to say is, well, I'm here for concrete removal. So um, because other people shouldn't have to go through this. Right. So, yeah, I'm a rose that popped up the concrete. Thank you very much, Dr. Jeff, Jeffrey Duncan Andrade and his work. Um, but don't but don't tell us that the concrete doesn't exist. Right. Because now I, if I can't see the concrete, I can't remove it for other people. So bless your friends. Bless their hearts. Very good. Uh, I wrote you a message there. And how, how are you doing on time? We're past the hour mark, hour and twelve. Are we good? Are, yeah, no, I am. I'm so tired. I'm delirious. So it's. I don't know. I don't even know what month it is. It's fine. <laughs> I'm so busy. I don't. It's. Okay. I don't know <laughs> what season is it. <laughs> Emery Emery said we got rid of segregation, but still need to change the values celebrated in this society, which still regards black people as outsiders in the country we built. We have to extirpate. Uh, the value of white supremacy and colorblind racism. Let me put that on the screen here. Uh, so, to the to the question, I mean, Emery Emery wrote this. Uh, well, it's not a question, but he wrote, "We got rid of segregation, but still need to change the values uh, celebrated in our society." I don't know if you can elaborate on that. In which still regards black people as outsiders of the country. Are we still? Are, are we still? And this would go back to the other conservative. Are we still seeing? And I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about. Um, and I, I hate to try to you know try to say this politely, but inner city, um, you know, more negative environment. African Americans who live in those particular environments. But are you seen as an outsider? Are, are, am I seen? Is is the people who are watching this seen, who are probably mostly positive, um, are, are are they seen outsiders? Would you would you would you outside take that? What? Outside what? Outside. I would say, I would assume. Well, he wrote this, so I, I'm not sure. Outside of the mainstream of, of society. Um, listen, I I live in Connecticut, and and you know when this stuff goes on, when this when this stuff goes on, right? Um, uh, just a little story. My daughter and I, uh, my daughter's getting her own apartment finally. Yay. So, um, so I know. <laughs> so, uh, so we're going to these different stores and stuff. And sometimes I just walk around now, you know, I got this full beard and baseball cap. I walk around and, and listen, these, I don't know if it's because these protests, but I, I am getting so many hellos and highs and how you doing and holding the door for me. So is again, is this, is it just my experience? Is this other people's experiences? And I know that you 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 talked about this. You know, uh, we can have two of two different experiences and living in the same place, the same country, and everything. Um, so I, I question to the to the magnitude or to the to the question: Are we living? Are, are we outsiders in the mainstream? I mean, what's your thoughts about that? Yeah, 
Yeah. So if, if I could back up, though, because I think Emory's comment is richer than that. So let me just say this, too. So um, the first part says we got rid of segregation. Mm, well, yes and no. But let me just let me just say let me give you the surprise data on segregation. So we all know if we're education scholars from the work of Gary Orfield, Dr. Gary Orfield, he studied school segregation and school integration and desegregation for years. And what he found was actually the most the most racially segregated group in the United States is white students, right? The most racially segregated group in schools is white students followed closely behind by Asian students. And the reason that's so stunning and the reason that's so problematic and like, um, you know, insipid is because they, when you, when you are around psychologically people who are similar to you, you become even more radical and steeped in that belief. So if you're only ever around white people, you, you become steeped in whiteness. So now when you go out into the world as a decision maker, you're going to work on Wall Street, you're going to go be a teacher, you're going to go be a, whatever you are. Now you're racially underdeveloped because your social circle doesn't have any people of color in it, probably. And when you encounter people in your workplace that you who you've never seen before, you don't know what to do. And then I and enter someone like me as an EEO counselor. So the first thing I want to say is we actually it's debatable, right? Like maybe we got rid of, 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 of de jure, right? Segregation, right? Where you can't have it legally. But in practice, we actually are still racially segregated. And the people who I think suffer from that, from them, from racial isolation the most is white people. Because you, now you don't know how to interact with people of color. Now you've got internalized superiority and you don't know what to do. You don't know what to do in a world full of people who don't look like you. Right. Because white people can forget that they're global minorities. Right. People of color are actually the global majority. And we really need to remember that. The second part of um, Emery's comment was about being an outsider. I mean, I think that part of the reason that I think that part of the reason that we're outsiders, it, you know, so minority status is not really based on number. It's based on power. So if you go to any African country, those countries have very white governments where white folks and sort of European folks control the diamond industry, the water and the infrastructure, the coal industry, government. Right? So you don't need number doesn't equate to power. Power equates to power. So I think part of the reason that we are minoritized is not so much about number. It's about power. And let me just give you this last tidbit. We know from the Department of Labor, the Department uh, of Education, um, the Pew Research Center, that our country is on a course of sort of racial equalization, where the number of people of color will, will soon, either in 2035 or 2042, depending on which projection you like, that the number of people of color will equal the number of, the, of white people. Right? We've already surpassed that in public schools. The majority of enrolled children in public schools are actually students of color. People, white people especially, are terrified of this sort of equilibration. I'm not, because if you maintain control over power, it doesn't matter how many people of color, it doesn't matter how many women you have in your organization, it doesn't matter how many LGBT, the question is who has the power and control? So I'm not concerned uh, about being an outsider. You know, I think eventually we'll get to the point where we're more equitable um, and where we talk about power more and where we will see a more representative nation. Now, I am excited about that. I'm excited about Kamala Harris. I really am. Like, it's just one woman of color, but I'm excited 
about a half black, half Jamaican, half Indian woman on a vice presidential ticket with a reasonable chance, chance of winning. That's exciting to me, but it's, but it's one woman. And so I'm excited about a representative government and representative power. Um, I think we're a little a ways away from that, but I think that'll kind of mitigate whether we feel like insiders or outsiders, because you'll always be on the periphery or ancillary if you don't have any power. That's how I look at it. Very good. Uh, we're, we're kind of going long here, but I, but I appreciate the conversation. And um, I know that you're tired and I want to let you go here. I just got a couple more questions. We're going to end it off. I, I really want people to go over to check out what you wrote on Medium and um I was scrolling through here trying to find some parts here, but the 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 uh, name of the article is again is I'm an anti-racist anti-racism trainer, and Trump canceled me. But here's why I'm dangerous but hopeful. Uh, you also wrote uh, I'm a buttoned up Blasian diversity consultant, and I fell for the f and I fell the f apart. My mental meltdown during the summer of George Floyd. And on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, black people don't even have basic safety. How can, how you can prevent another Breonna Taylor? A lot of different articles that you wrote uh, that which drew me to you. So please go over to Medium, check out her articles. We'll be looking for your website there. You always finish. Oh, oh, oh here there. You wrote this in the comments. Okay, let me copy this. And yeah, um, the one for the one that we were. Yeah, but there. I'm going to put it in the chat here. Um, so. <clears throat> You always you you ended up with the articles we're talking about voting, so let's just get into yeah. politics just a little bit here, just yeah. a little bit. What what's your thoughts about uh, about first of all the first de debate or comic show, whatever whatever was going on that night, <laughs> and uh, of course as you mentioned you were excited about Kamala. Uh, yeah. What what's what's your thoughts about that type of thing? Okay, again, because I always like to sort of answer questions you didn't ask. Um, I, I am excited <laughs> that it's an election year. I, I am excited that it's an election year, Captain Hunter, but I'm disappointed that we started, at least on the Democratic side this year, we started with the most diverse group of candidates, I think, in history. We had Joaquin Castro. We had Elizabeth Warren. We had, uh, oh my, we had so many people on the Democratic side, um, you know, we had so many women, we had so many people of color. We, oh my God, it was, it was so exciting. So the fact that we ended up, you know, with Joe Biden, um, he's a lovely man. He's going to be exponentially and infinitely better than any flaming dumpster fire on the other side. So I'm not, I'm, I don't begrudge and lament and I don't sort of resentfully support him. I just, I just first wanna bring up my disappointment at the fact that in 2020, we still couldn't get to some other candidate for president that was not a man. And now we've gone back <clears throat> to yet another white man. So I think, you know, that actually explains some of the pressure that everyone felt to diversify the ticket, at least with a woman. And now we have a woman of color who's hyper competent. So I'm excited. I I, I think you probably know how I'm going to cast my vote, but um, <laughs> I couldn't tell. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's um, yeah. I mean, it's not like, do you want to be shot or take poison? It's like, do you want to die or do you want to cuddle with newborn puppies? Like, I'm gonna cuddle with newborn puppies. Thank you. Um, so it's not that's not even apples and oranges. That's like apples and uh, monkeys. Like it's it's not it's that's not even the same. So um, so I would never have trouble choosing between Trump and Biden Harris. But um, your question again was about the election, and you you asked me something very specific. I'm sorry. I forgot to, quite honestly. Uh, just, <laughs> not, <laughs> just, uh, just your thoughts about Kamala Harris. Uh, what's going on? 
I think that you kind of answered it already. I mean, you're, you're excited about, about the ticket. Um, I, oh, I want to know your, your thoughts about the debate, the first debate, the second debate. Uh, yeah. um, what I mean, there was, there was supposed to be a debate yesterday, right? But they canceled it because dueling town hall. So let me just say yeah. briefly, I really can't answer this briefly. So for the presidential debate, um, I always tell organizations um, that within your organization, whatever kind of organization, school district, university, branch of the military, federal agency, it should be harder to be a bully than it is to be the person who got bullied. It should be harder to be a racist than the person who is the victim of racism. It should be harder to be a sexually harassing, sexually assaulting sexist than it is to be a victim of those things. And I think what we saw on the debate stage is this man is a verbal bully. He literally launches personal attacks. And so if he were literally a part of any of the organizations that I work with, I would say, oh, okay, well, we're going to have to address your culture and we're going to have to address what makes this man possible. I did, um, I gathered together all the African-American employees at a federal agency a couple of months ago because someone at their white leader said, Dr. Jackson, somebody needs to talk to them. Like they're angry. They're incensed. We don't know what to do. People are uncomfortable. Oh my gosh. Right. So I got together the African-American employees, all of them. Like it was a huge zoom call for three hours. And one of the most compelling things that came out of that session was somebody said in this company, how are you able to treat the black people like trash, to treat the women like trash and still be here? How are you still able to command your salary and continue to excel and be promoted if you can't even get your interpersonal um, uh, relations right? How are you able to be here? How is no one uh, holding you accountable in your performance evaluation? And that stuck with me. And I think that Donald Trump, if he does get elected, I think that all of that bad behavior that we see from him in a debate and really just sort of on a daily basis, I think I think that's going to get positively reinforced. So I am I'm not worried. Right. Because we've already survived four years of that. But um, I, I think about that a lot. Again, he's a tone setter in chief. So what he teaches the United States is you can get up here and interrupt incessantly. You can say horribly racist things. You can say xenophobic things. You can say transphobic and homophobic things and you get reelected. Right. And there's no consequence. So I I think about that. I don't worry about that, but I think a lot about that. And then with regard to the vice presidential debate, I actually use a still of uh, Kamala Harris and Mike Pence being asked about, they got, they got posed a very simple question. Did Breonna Taylor receive justice? I mean, it was very plainly worded. It was not a leading question. Did Breonna Taylor and her family receive justice? Kamala Harris came out and people think she's problematic too. So I don't uncritically celebrate her legal record. We can talk about that later because people are like, wait a minute, she's part of the problem. Like, okay, well, so, but even still, she was able to muster a, um, a response that said, basically, I instituted implicit bias training in California, right? Enter Captain Hunter, enter Tahari Jackson. That, that's what we do, right? I do believe that there is disparity that there is inequity and there is disproportional injustice for black people in this country. And I'm so sorry that shouldn't happen and we're gonna work on that. Enter Vice President Mike Pence, vastly different answer, vastly different experience. Well, Kamala, fly on head. I don't inherit. <laughs> I, don't I was going to ask you, it was a fly in his head when you were. Know, is I, that I, one of the questions? I, I, I had a talk, but um, you know, I don't inherently believe that, oh, no, I, I can do you one better. It's so, it was so weird, right? So 
I don't know if you can see that, but yeah, like, <laughs> I, it's just like a little black thing. But anyway, so to the public, American public, I apparently don't believe that even implicit bias exists. And I believe that we, what we ought to do is fortify law enforcement. So he really kind of retorts, he kind of comes back and rebuts with this argument for how we not only need to you know, sort of defund the police and think about community-based things, but he comes back and says, we need more law and order. We probably need more stop and frisk. We, I mean, it's just, so again, they gave vastly different answers, but when you ask a black person about what it's like to interact with the police in this country. I mean, I actually drove to DMV during a pandemic to renew my, my registration because even little old me, I know better than to let your registration expire. I know better than to have a tail light out. I know better right, than to have an expired license or outstanding tickets because it's, it's not going to go well for me. It is not going to bode well for me if I don't get that taken care of. If I get stopped by the police on the way home, Captain Honor, I may not live to tell about it. And that's unacceptable. That is unacceptable. So, yeah, they gave their vastly different answers. That's that's my take on it. And now I use it as a teaching moment. <laughs> uh, just last, well, I hope it's the last question. Yeah. Uh, so we talked a little bit about Michigan uh, and what happened at the um you know, the guy showing up there with the guns. And then of course there was the plot to, uh, yes. to kidnap the governor. Do you talk about that at all? Or, or is, or is according to other conservatives, particularly black conservatives, one particularly black female conservative, whose name I don't like to say, uh, uh, says that white domestic terrorists is not that big of a problem. Oh no. Well then that controverts what we know from the federal government. I believe that either the FBI, I can't remember it because the intelligence community is my favorite. Like they're keeping us safe and we don't even know like how, like how many bombs and things. I, I just, I love the intelligence community, but, um, but what I'll say is no, actually, if we, if we just Google right now, I believe it's the FBI. There was a story the other day, especially on uh, Huffington post. And it said, one, you know, intelligence agency, whether it's FBI or otherwise, says that white terrorists and white supremacists are actually the greatest terrorist threat to the United States. They actually pose the greatest terrorist threat. When we think about the Southern Poverty Poverty Law Center, they were documenting sort of the amping up of white supremacist terrorist groups, starting with Ob uh, President Obama's administration. They have continued to track and sort of register hate groups, and they have grown exponentially under this administration. And so, no, um, I don't know who, again, I work with scientists, so the data are on my side, right? And I read, and I'm dangerous because I read that story, and I respect the intelligence community. They don't lie unless it's going to save your life, right? Like, you know, so, um, yeah, no, if they were if they were people of color, we would be calling them terrorists. Um, and we would be putting them under the jail, but um, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see who claims insanity. We'll see, you know, whose whose convictions get overturned. Uh, we kind of know how that story ends. Yeah, very good. Um, I'm gonna let you go. I really, really appreciate. it. I could talk to you all day, all night. <laughs> um, for a tired person, your energy is. <laughs> <laughs> you should see me when I'm not tired. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, listen, it's probably. <laughs> probably have to have to follow the camera around the room there right just to keep you in it you know um so i know you're opening up a website you you're consulting can you give us a website that you're going to do your consulting services can people reach out to you and 
yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm tr- again, I'm I'm a bit overwhelmed, uh, and I'm just committed to you know. To Listen, I'm trying to take stuff off your plate, so. <laughs> So don't, don't ever don't ever feel that you can't say no. No, <laughs> when I pay off my figure student loan debt, right? Um, and then that's no, I'm kidding. I, I actually will send you something. No, no, I'm, no. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm not. Yeah, I want to say like, oh, I'm not taking new partners, but if it's really compelling and if it's on a Sunday or a Saturday or like now, you know, this is at 7:30 at night, so it doesn't interrupt my commitment to my day job. I'm I'm fiercely committed to that. But here's where you can get me. So I do write lots on Medium, but I also tag my, my uh, I, I, I attach my posts and my writing to my LinkedIn profile. So the best way to, uh, to connect is to go to LinkedIn for now, um, you know, Tahari, Dr. Con- Tahari Consulting, or you just put in Tahari Jackson. A website is coming later this month, but I don't, I, I'm hesitant to say the date because my web designer is, is incredible and I don't want to rush her, but I believe it'll be drtahari.com. Um, people can talk, uh, people can see, you know, sort of what I do, which is I speak, um, I do consulting um, on a good day, if it's a weekend or an evening, or, you know, sometimes I make exceptions. I do train the trainers. I'm actually uh, a certified trainer of diversity trainers. Um, and uh, I'm a federally certified EEO counselor. And I also know EO on the military side. And I am a sexual harassment assault response prevention, sexual assault response coordinator, because I know that our, our branches of the military so often need uh, support in that way. So reach out to me on LinkedIn until drtahari.com is up and running. Very good. Very good. I, I had someone on the show one time and they said that they were sex, sexual. No, they were domestic violence. Domestic violence facilitator. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, you facilitate domestic violence. <laughs> So we had a good laugh about that. Actually, she was, I think she was in the, she was in the chat, I think. So I, would, I had a good laugh about that. But anyway, so, so I, I appreciate all that. Thank you so much. Listen, you're, you're coming back. You got an article coming up that we talked about already. We're coming back. Uh, listen, you're going to be a staple on the show and people are going to know uh, who you are. Please go back to the audience. Listen to the previous episode that we had. We were talking about George Floyd and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, she's going to be coming back. And we're gonna need her energy. Uh, we don't even I, listen. I don't even need to plug my laptop in. It's so much energy, <laughs> so much energy coming through here. Um, so I thank you. I thank you for coming on. Thank you to everyone who, who showed up. Yes. Uh, Lavanda, who's also great, who's coming back on the show. Uh, we got to hook that up. Uh, uh, Emery, uh-huh, Teresa that's Dr. Mills. He's gonna get his PhD. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> you call, right, what did, what did you call? Future Dr. Mills. Yeah. Future Dr. Mills. Okay, very good. We'll have him on. Uh, and um, let's see, Joe being silly. He's been texting me the whole time. Being silly. Uh, and uh, Sean was here. And just to everyone else who showed up, I don't want to start calling names. Akia, Eric, uh, thank you guys so, so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it uh, to, to come in. And thank you all for your comments. Thank you once again to Dr. Jahari. Uh, Jackson, she's coming back. So we're going to say so long because we're not going to say goodbye. So we're going to say so long. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, have a good night. We'll see you guys. Um, I think next Wednesday or Thursday, next Wednesday or Thursday, we're going to have another show talking about dating. Uh, um, Messy entanglements is the segment we're going to call it. So yeah. (laughs) Um, And then uh, next Monday, I have a guest, but let me look at my calendar. Uh, Who's my... (laughs) Who's my guest for next Monday? Got a show coming up next Monday. Yeah, uh, I was saying that I can't help you with that dating one. I got nothing. I got. Le- um, I should come into that one and get some tips. Thanks. <laughs>
Okay, go ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, we got an interview with another, another PhD, Dr. Nicole Cochran, uh, and we're going to talk specifically about implicit bias. Um, so we're going to dig into that um, and uh, just some of her work that she's that she's doing some, some great work out there in California as well. So uh, great, great show. Uh, we're not going to continue to talk about racism. Actually, the next three weeks is going to be about racism. I'm sorry about that, but we got to talk about it. Uh, and then I have a, another special guest, a former chief of police coming in a couple of weeks. His name is Norm Stamper. Uh, wrote a book to, uh, to any officers out there. He wrote a great, great book. And so we got a, a lot of great, great shows coming up. I'm booked all the way up until the no end of November. Just want to put you guys on notice right now that at the end of Dece in December, I'm taking a whole month off because I've been doing this for a year and a half and I'm tired. So uh, <laughs> so I'm going to take all of December off, kind of enjoy the holidays, and we're going to start up again. I've already got the shows already booked up for January. So we're going to finish out October, all of, uh, of November. And then we'll start again in January. Already got shows booked and everything like that. So I'll see you guys. Much love and peace. Thank you so much, Dr. Jackson. And um, we'll say goodbye to everyone. Take care.